Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast series. And I'm very pleased to say that today we have Tony Perman on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Signs of the Spirit, Music and the Experience of Meaning in Endow Ceremonial Life. Tony, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thank you for being on the show. Can you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I teach at Grinnell College, and I've, I've been here for about 10 years. And I grew up in Illinois, which is not too far from Iowa, which is where Grinnell is. Um, and I teach at the musicology, and I, I got into it mostly as a performer playing music, which sort of led me into academia. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which we can talk about in a minute if you want. Um, I'm not sure what else. Actually, I'd like to talk about it now. Okay, T- sure. Tell us about you as a musician. <laughs> well, so I grew up like, I suppose a lot of Midwesterners who play music, it's mostly classical music is all the educational opportunities. So I was a singer and went to Kenyon College in Ohio to do singing, to do vocal performance and music, sort of classical music. But I got sort of... Um, I don't know if disenchanted isn't the right word, but it's not really the music I listened to. I just liked making sound. So I ended up in London and hooked up with this Zimbabwean musician, Chartwell Nutiro, and learned Mbita with him and joined his band and just kind of fell in love with it and toured around with him for a little bit. And then knew so I you actually remember. toured with the band. Like you were yeah. Yeah, in a little the band bit in, touring. Yeah. yeah playing Mbita in the UK and in North America a couple of times. Um, that's, then, that must have been an amazing experience, I have to say, oh, for a great. kid from Illinois. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, Charwell passed away a couple of years ago, but I think his sort of openness to having somebody like me in his band really changed the trajectory of my life in a lot of ways. So this book is very, in, in a lot of ways, and my whole career is a, sort of a product of that sort of quirky happenstance of joining his band and touring around. Yeah, but before we go there, let, let's talk about how you got to Grinnell. How did you get to Grinnell? Uh, so, uh, Grinnell is the other, third. Other than you needed a job. I mean, that's the main <laughs> yeah, reason. Yeah, I needed right, a job. Yeah. And I had a couple other jobs beforehand. I taught at Bowdoin College in Maine for a couple of years and Pomona College in California for a couple of years, just as visiting gigs, and then entered the sort of liberal arts world. And then Grinnell had a job opening, um, and I just ended up there. Um, okay. Most Most of the music faculty at Grinnell perform and do scholarship. We sort of live in both yeah. worlds. So I think the fact that I play and write is sort of one reason that it kind of works out well. Do you, do you, do you still play? Yeah. So I teach an ensemble at Grinnell, the okay. Zimbabwe and Mbita ensemble. And so I play and, and teach that as part of my sort of... Uh, it must be job. wildly popular. <laughs> I would well, yeah, take that. <laughs> it, it's fun. It, for, I think the students who find it love it. <laughs> but yeah. it, it's... um. It's a, it feels intimidating at first because it's usually so new for most of the students. Mm-hmm. So they have to be brave. But once yeah. they are, well, they usually Grinnell, Grinnell students are brave. They are. I'm not sure yeah. I was the bravest Grinnell student, but uh, I graduated in 84, but uh, I would like to have taken that class. So let's uh, turn back to this interesting intersection of your personal experience and Zimbabwe and Endow. So this is really how you got into it, by meeting Zimbabwean musicians. And suddenly you were like, hey... This is cool. Yeah, like because I went to England to do graduate school 
to study ethnomusicology, but not to study Zimbabwe. I didn't, that wasn't really on my radar. It was just meeting Chartwell and then playing with him kind of shifted my focus. Um, but when I went back, when I went to do my PhD and thinking I would do research on music in Zimbabwe, I, I decided I didn't really want to write about the Mbira because on the one hand, that's what I play. I'd like to sort of keep that as just something I do, but also it's perhaps the thing that's most written about and most attended to in Zimbabwean music. There's a lot of scholarship on the Mbira. There's players all over the world. And there's so much else happening in the country that I wanted to do something else and not be doing that. And then I just sort of traveled the country thinking about what should I do and ended up in Chipinge, which is where the Ndao community is sort of, that's the sort of center of the Ndao speaking area of Zimbabwe and fell in love with the music there and sort of fell in love with the community and was fairly openly received. And so I stuck around and started, that's where I, my research focus really shifted to that part of Zimbabwe. Well, that, that's a that's a great story, actually. It's a nice organic story about how you kind of found yourself in the context of these people doing this thing and became one of them and then went on to actually study what they do. Seriously, that's a great yeah. story. Yeah, it was really a profoundly positive experience the whole way through. <laughs> that's great. I mean, it's I uh, th this will sound like stereotypes, but I, I have some friends who study Africa sub-Saharan Africa, and they claim to me that sub-Saharan Africans are the happiest people on earth. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to think about that. I don't know if, yeah, I I don't know if that's true, but they're like, they're just very happy. I don't know why, but they're very happy people. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about ethnomusicology. Uh, I'm a historian. What is ethnomusicology? Um I mean, if I'm being flippant about it, I just think of ethnomusicology as the study of music. Um, but it, it emerged as the sort of filling in the gaps of other older studies of music. So you have historical musicology, which is a his, history field, but it focused historically almost entirely on Western European art music. You have music theory, which has focused also mostly on Western European art music, but in an analytical sense, kind of comparable to linguistics of what's Actually, just to interrupt you, I, ha I, I have an acquaintance who is a, uh, a musicologist, a music theorist. And as far as I can tell, he's a mathematician. <laughs> yeah, music theory is a very mathematical kind of field. We get a lot of double majors in music and math, and that really yeah. appeals to them. Yeah. But as musicology emerged, mostly to pay attention to the, all the rest of the world's musics. Um, but a better answer than just the study of music, it's really... The study of music in context, like the social importance, political importance, the kind of meaning of music beyond sound itself. So trying to connect musical sound to something, whether it's politics, religion, social dynamics, um, sort of, it depends on, there's so many different kinds of ethnomusicology now. So it's really anthropological in a lot of ways, especially in the United States, the methodology is drawn more from anthropology, really, than from other musical fields like theory or historical musicology. Mm -hmm. Well, an important part of your book is the affective component in musical performance, and and I, I can I can speak to this directly because you know music in situ being performed, it's a very emotional experience. I mean, I don't want to get too biographical, but I was listening to my Spotify playlist, and they played a song that I hadn't heard in twenty years, and I started crying. 
for me, that's where it's at. Is that that's what's so that's why I get into this and what I'm fascinated about. Music has so much impact emotionally. Yeah, but you can't always put that into words. Yeah, like, that's tough. And that's so that's what that's what I see. The fun part of doing ethnomusicology is trying to put into words those experiences, those affective experiences of music. That is the whole reason we play or listen that we don't usually need words for. Like, you don't, you don't need to explain why you cried. You just know you cried. Right. I, yeah, I just cried. I don't know exactly why I did, but it just happened, and I was very shocked by it, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. Um, so it's kind of music and performance in situ, that is, while it's being performed. Um, and so then there's this other interesting word in your book that I wanted to talk to you about, musicking, because we don't have a verb in English to music. No, and that's, why, that's why a lot of ethnomusicologists, and that comes from a, a guy named Christopher Small, who was the first person to use that in scholarship in English. Um, I mean, lots of languages have gerunds or verb versions of music, but English, like we can say dancing or playing or acting, but music doesn't really work. And not every ethnomusicologist likes this word. I actually had a long conversation last week with a colleague of mine who just hates that word like we should just stick with the ones that we already use instead of making up new ones but i love it because oh i'm all for making up new words where there's something lacking i mean that's why we have language so we can make this stuff up because it accurately describes the experience which is not just listening to music or watching a performance because you are in it when i i said especially when i'm teaching like i think students especially students who aren't necessarily active players encounter music through things, whether it's recordings. And so they think of music's, music as a thing, as an object or as a product. And I really want to put their energies into thinking about as a process, as an experience that's happening in real time. So turning it into a verb, for me, lets me put the emphasis on the doing as opposed to the thing that's done. Um, so I, I use it all the time. Some of my students love it. Some of them drives them crazy. But. Yeah, well, I think it's a very, um, it's a, I don't know if it's a neologism anymore, but it's a very useful one, and I will drop it into my daily vocabulary. So um, let's talk a little bit uh, about the book. So uh, how did you actually conduct the research? How did you decide to go where you went and, and to listen to whom you listened to and to talk to the people that you talked to? Yeah. Talk about that. That's a good question. So, I mean, my initial encounter in Zimbabwe was in the capital city, Harare, through the Mbira, which is this instrument I learned with Chartwell in England. But I knew when I got there, that's not what I wanted to do research on. So I just traveled around and I ended up in Chipinge, which is a town of like 20 to 30,000 people. And this is 2001. I was just sort of exploring the country. And I just lived there for a couple of weeks. And in those two weeks, I hooked up with a lot of musicians. And then musically really different from the rest of Zimbabwe. It's linguistically quite different. It's geographically really different. It's up in the highlands and the mountains. And I just really loved it. And so then I shifted my dissertation work to focus on that area. But I didn't, basically, I just showed up in 2003 and rented a room and then just sort of hung out and slowly got to know musicians. And I stayed for about two years and just developed this network of musicians. And it was, I mean, I felt really welcomed. So it was, um, I don't know, it just felt, like the right place to be. And so that, I ended up doing lots of different kinds of research. The book is only about one particular kind of 
spiritual musical practice, but there's all sorts of other musics that I'll, I write about in other contexts. A different kind of ambita. There's a lot of drumming styles and then singing styles. And then there's this sort of ceremonial practice that uh, was just the richest experiential musical space in the area. It was just such a fun, complex, serious, but also playful musical space. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about the way that I experience music and that is, I mean, in my own life, you know, I go to concerts occasionally, they were in bars or stadia. And uh, I was telling my daughter that I saw the Rolling Stones once and they were about the size of an ant because I was, because <laughs> I was, I was, I was a thousand yards away from them, but I was at a concert with them. Um, or I listened to music through headphones on Spotify. What, what is the musical experience like? This is kind of a silly question in, uh, for uh, the endow. endow, how do they um, do music? Well, it's variable. Um, some of it is exactly like the things you're describing. Maybe not stadium with thousands, millions, like tens of thousands of people, but you'll go to concerts and there's pop music, there's sort of hip hop derived music, there's guitar band music, there's a lot of gospel music. Um, those things would maybe be more familiar to the average American listener, but there's other kinds of music making, the more that I write about that are really different. And I don't think there are that many contexts in the United States that are comparable in the sense that it's, a, it's an intimate setting, either inside a house, a small house, I don't know, maybe 20 feet in diameter, circular house, or it starts there and then goes right outside the house packed with people like the ceremony. That's the center of the book. There are probably I don't know, 100 to 150 people there. So it's quite crowded in the house, and it usually starts at dusk. And then there's ebbs and flows, but at, at its heightened moments, everybody is contributing something. So nobody's the audience. <laughs> everybody's Not everybody plays the drums or sings the songs. Those are more specialized. But everybody's maybe clapping or ululating in appreciation or clearing the center of the floor for people who are dancing or they're dancing themselves. So everybody feels like they're part of contributing to the actual event as opposed to being performed for by someone else. Spectator. Right. There's no spectators. And if you are a spectator, they'll, over time, eventually somebody will urge you to do something. <laughs> not everybody does. Some people just aren't that into music or they're not, they don't feel like they're very good at it and they don't do as much. But they're still doing something. You can clap your hands, sing a chorus, stomp your feet when things are really going well, something. And then other people carry on the main labor, playing the drums, singing the songs, keeping things going, keeping the energy up so that it can sustain itself all night long. Mm -hmm. And is there a, this is part of a ritual, if I can call it a ritual or a ceremony, is there a set, uh, uh, I'm thinking set list. That's the wrong word. Is is there a, a kind of song cycle that they perform? These are songs known to everyone. Is it, it is it um, improvisational or in in a in a way it's kind of all of the above. <laughs> it's not a set list. It's not like before it begins, you know. Okay, well, the, the reason song. I mentioned that. Sorry to interrupt. Is that I I remember going to Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Wichita, Kansas, where they would list the things we were going to sing up front. <laughs> okay, at this point, we're going to sing this. We're going to sing that. Yeah. <laughs> They'll have. I mean, there's a sort of core repertoire. They'll know these are probably the songs we'll draw from, and they might there might be a few that 
we'll start with this and this and this. Um, but it depends in large part on which spirits show up. <laughs> um, and oftentimes the spirits themselves will start the song. Not yes, always. talk Sometimes a little bit about these spirits. How, how does this happen? How does it manifest? Because I was going to say, no, no spirits showed up at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. <laughs> well, maybe you went to the wrong church. Another yeah, I probably did. Yeah, you're, good point. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the religious life in these communities, and Zimbabwe is interesting because a lot of people in the country attend ceremonies like I described and sort of live their spiritual life through spirits. But a lot of the country is also extremely Christian and a very it's a very publicly Christian country, much more so than the United States, that you just see Christianity and hear Christianity everywhere on TV, on the radio, walking down the street. Um, and it can be somewhat antagonistic at times through the history of colonial missionization that gets complicated. But in the endowed community, there are spirits of your ancestors, um, which are family spirits. And those are very usually much more private. They're just for your family, really. They're not really big public ceremonies, which they are in other parts of the country. The main spirits publicly, these sort of social events that I'm describing, you could, there's different words in different parts, even in Ndao, like I call them Majlozi. Some people call them Mashave, but they're spirits of outsiders and there's different kinds. And so one reason you don't know what you're going to play is it depends on which spirits show up. There's different categories of spirits so I've read about four because the main ceremonies I went to had these four categories of spirits, but there's lots of other ones that I don't write about at all. And they each have their own repertoire, their own drums, their own mediums. And the, so you, usually, you know, in advance, you hire mediums or you have relations with mediums who say, we're going to have a ceremony, please come. And then you play, let's say they're Majiti spirits or the spirits of South African Gazanguni, or you could say Zulu soldiers from the 19th century. They traveled into what's now Zimbabwe in the 19th century, died there, and now come back as spirits. So you play these specific drums for them, and those mediums know they have those spirits, and they'll probably welcome the spirits. So you play music, you take snuff, which is actually hugely important. I mean, without the snuff, the spirit it kind of wakes them up. And then you just play music, and then eventually, through the dancing, they go into trance, and the spirit wakes up. That's the word, the verb typically used. They wake up within them. And then it's the spirit now you're interacting with. And the medium, like the living person, usually has no memory of events afterwards. So they might ask you how it went when it's all said and done. But so in the moment, then the spirit's there, and they're the ones dancing. And they might then tell you, oh, let's do this song. This is one of my favorites, or something like that. Um, and then variable, it can take 10 minutes or an hour, depending on how happy they are or what difficulties in life led to having the ceremony in the first place or if you just want to say hi and kind of keep just sort of dropping an email to somebody just keep up good relations like hey, i didn't forget about you come and dance for a few minutes and then they dance and then they'll leave and then all those spirits might leave after an hour or two and then a whole new set of spirits will come and then so the ceremony that's the main sort of site of the book there's four spirits the first one show up around four in the afternoon and the last ones leave around 10 a.m. the next morning. And that's the sort of the time frame of, and that's a pretty typical time frame, actually. So it's the music that engenders trance, and then the trance sort of allows the spirit to sort of 
take over the body of their medium with the sort of medium's permission, and then the spirit becomes the sort of in charge of that body. So just to be clear, then, these media, I don't know what the plural of mediums. I just say mediums. Mediums mediums are known to the community. Oh, yeah. And you know in advance, like, oh, we want these spirits to come. We should invite these people. um, How do you become known as a medium? Well, I mean, the initial experience, you obviously might not know that you will be a medium as you get older. Um, although you, most people think that the spirit that you have is you're born with that spirit. They don't arrive later, but then, and not everybody, so everybody has a spirit, but not everybody becomes a medium. So at some point in your life, you'll probably get sick or injured in some way that the doctors can't help you with. And then, so then you go to a sort of a, an herbalist or a spiritual healer and say, this is happening. I'm sick. I don't know what's going on. And they'll say, well, it might be your grandfather or it might be this Majiti spirit um, who's wants you to be a medium for them. And so we need to figure that out. So then you'd have a ceremony specifically figure that out and then go into trance and then that spirit emerges and then everybody around them will say, who are you? What's up? What are you doing? And then they say, oh, I'm so-and-so. And I want this. I want this person to be a medium. Here's the things I expect them to do to sort of nurture this relationship. And so then, from that point on, you you can choose to be a medium and honor that spirit and do the things they want you to do, which might mean don't eat this food, do wear these clothes, maybe quit that job, or not. And if you don't, you'll probably just keep getting sick, and you just have to deal with that. So most people choose to listen. Um, and then at that point, then people know. And then you learn to foster that relationship. It's kind of a skill. So you get better at it. The early days, it's really difficult and feels can appear very violent. But older experienced mediums, they can sort of get that spirit to wake up quite quickly. Mm-hmm. So a family or a group of people will essentially hire a medium and say, okay, we want you to come. Yeah, yeah. So like this ceremony, the community invited several mediums, several of whom actually had several spirits. And they knew in advance, these are, these are the sort of who we hired for this event. And so they're kind of taken care of. They make special food for them, make sure there's beer for them or alcohol for them if they need it. Um, increasingly, in the 21st century, you might pay them. Um, and then they're, that's their sort of job. Just like you might hire drummers or singers to play the music, that's their job. Everybody has a job. And those are the main ones. Mm-hmm. And And... If who exactly participate? Are these <laughs> bad, bad American analogy? Are these all ages shows? <laughs> oh, absolutely! They're way more all ages shows than any show in the U.S. Um, and especially these, like Madlozi events, they're really open. Like I show up and I just can go to one um, if I'm invited. But if I like my main sort of um, host at these, a guy named Davison Masiza who was my Ambira teacher. That's how I got to know him. Just whenever there was a ceremony, he's like, oh, you should come. And then I would go. And it is literally all ages shows from infants sort of on bait, on mother's backs all the way up to senior citizens who, once they sit down on the floor of the roundhouse, they're there all night because they can't really get back up. And the kids can come and go as they want. And usually once they fall asleep somewhere, somebody will then take them 
to a different house where they can sleep, but they're welcome to be there for as long as they want. Teenagers are kind of coming and going, off and going, and they might play a different kind of music out of earshot just for like like a teenage party at the same time of playing dance music, sort of flirting with each other. And they might not be, I mean, it, it's maybe not that dissimilar to church and how some young people feel about it and that it's just this thing you have to do. And it can get a little boring if you go all the time. And so they don't really want to be there. But some of them are really into it, especially if they're really into the music. Um, yeah, well, at Holy Cross Lutheran, they would take the fidgety children like me to the basement. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's one thing I think, like this feeling of being disrupted. It's pretty hard in these events. Like kids aren't going to disrupt it. And it's so loud. The kids are usually incapable of disrupting it. Um and they might leave and they might cry. And if they cry, then the mom will take them out and figure out why they're crying. But they're totally welcome whenever they want to be there. And let's talk a little bit about the music itself. So what sort of instruments are being played? Drums and shakers. Um, occasionally a whistle, too. But there's drums. And each kind of spirit have different drums. So there's multiple sets of drums. So in the Majitikam, you have, they kind of look like tambourines, but they don't have jangles on them. But they're frame, small frame drums. And you play those because um, they come from South Africa. Then they might leave, and then the Japuna come, who are old, like, they're female spirits. And then you might play just, you put a drum on the ground. It looks kind of like a bass drum on its side. And then you use your elbow to kind of change the pitch, and you play with one stick, and then you can have a tune. And then they come and go, and then the Mongo come, who are mermaid spirits. And then they have a set of... I don't know, kind of like timpani, like a set of round drums that are tuned differently. So you can play like melodically on those drums. And then those are for those spirits. And then they might go, then the Jayungu come, and they don't really have a drum yet. So you pick any one of those drums you already played, but you play it differently and they have their own rhythm. And all of those drums are accompanied by people playing shakers, which keep the beat and tell the dancers what it's at. Um, and then on top of that, people will sing. They have multiple singing parts. There's different kinds of whistling, which are mostly the equivalent of applause in a way. Um, and that's that's about it. There's, you don't really play any melodic instruments during these ceremonies. There are melodic instruments people play for fun, but they're not ceremonial instruments. It's all drumming mm -hmm. and shaking. Uh, is there a distinction? Can anybody play these drums or are there actual performers? Or are there highly well, prized drummers? Like, oh, we have to get him or her. She's yeah. great. Oh, sure. Like <laughs> Davis and Matisse is my host. People really liked having him at ceremonies because he was such a good drummer. But they'd also tell me I could play the drums, and then I would fumble around and play for a little while. So it's not restricted to the best players. So what often happens is at the beginning of a ceremony, before you really need those spirits to show up, you let the novices play. That might be when I would play. And you fumble around, and people dance and sing, but the stakes are low because they know you're not going to be good enough to really get the spirits to come, but it's okay because we're just warming up. So then the novices might play, the, the younger drummers who are enthusiastic but not very skilled play. And then over time, they'll step aside, and then the really good drummers will take over. And they'll play the exact same patterns, just better. And I think being better actually is, has consequences. It, it makes it more likely the spirits will get into it, and more likely they'll show up, more likely the ceremony will be a success. Um, so anybody is welcome to drum but you won't be able to drum for long unless you demonstrate 
some competence. <laughs> right, right. And so can you talk a little bit about the drums? Who makes them? How are they made? Are there especially drum, are there drum shops like, oh, he makes the best drums? Or do they make their own drums? Or? They make their own drums, and there's different makers who, oh, he makes the best drums. So it's not really a shop. Um, and especially the ones for the Mongo and the Majiti, where they have their own specialized drums, they're, they're fairly sacred things. So you don't just make drums when you feel like it. You usually make drums because this particular spirit says, you need to make some drums. Find somebody to make you some drums. Then, you, then you'll make a whole set. Um, and then you'll have a ceremony to kind of consecrate that set of drums and sort of name it. And so I had a set of drums made, and they just stopped short of that sort of, they weren't sanctified and they were consecrated. So they're right, just drums. Right, um, right. But a lot, of, and there's different attitudes. Like there's not like a consensus about anything I've said so far. But for some people, that's really serious. You don't just play around with these drums. So, for instance, if I ask somebody, "Can you show me how to play these songs?" They're like, "Yeah, sure," but I'm not going to do it on my drums because we're not bringing the spirit. So they'll play on old plastic jerry cans or something. Um, other people don't seem that concerned about that, and they'll play the drums whenever they feel like it. But um, and and you said that the drums have names. Yeah, you can name like the set of drums. Yeah, um, like the one who does it, or something like that. Um, uh-huh. And and how does how, how does one become? Can you apprentice yourself to a drummer? Like I really have this aspiration to be a great endowed drummer. <laughs> can I apprentice myself to you? <laughs> that's a that's a really good question. It's not that formalized the education system, like the. And usually, if you have that kind of um, uh, impetus or motivation or, like, be in your bonnet, you just have to do this, it's attributed to the spirits. Like, oh, you're really interested in drumming. You must have a spirit who's a drummer. But they're not, it's not always that cultivated. You sort of have to demonstrate your seriousness about it. So kids aren't always that encouraged. <laughs> like, it depends on who you're family members are, but it's often they're sneaking around and playing when they're maybe not supposed to, and which kind of demonstrates to their family, oh, they actually really do want to know how to do it. And then somebody who's a really good drummer will, and they'll often sit next to them at ceremonies and kind of pick it up. And then the, somebody will usually foster that interest. Um, so often it's children of drummers who become good drummers or children of a beat up players become good to be a player. So there's no formal apprentice program but if, if you're motivated and stubborn and resilient eventually somebody will really show you the ropes um, yeah like like much of life <laughs> yeah um, but i think about that when i teach in beauty in the united states like students enroll in my class and then i'm very patient with them and they have this hour and this day and this hour and this day and maybe they're into it maybe they just want the credit or something different to do it's not but it's, I'm catering to them because they're enrolled in my class. Whereas if I were an Mbita player in Zimbabwe and my kids were interested or the neighbor kids were interested, I wouldn't really cater to them in that way until they really demonstrated that they were going to work. Um, and then it would be worth of, your time. Exactly. <laughs> because it's not a paid position usually. You're doing it out of both kindness and the desire to have the next generation also be able to do these things. Um, but you don't like people who teach the neighborhood kids how to play the drums aren't usually paid. No, no, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. Now you talk in the book a lot about the meaning of 
these ceremonies and the music, uh, meaning is a very slippery word because things mean different things for different people. Can you talk a little bit about what these ceremonies mean to the people who participate in them? Yeah. I mean, and that's like, as an ethnomusicologist, that's where my main questions are drawn is that question of what meaning is based on the sort of my conviction that music is deeply meaningful in lots of different ways for lots of different people. And so that's what I'm trying to get at is how complex that simple question you just asked is like what, what this can mean. It's really complicated. It can mean all sorts of things. Um, I don't know what, what the simplest way to answer is that the meaning is it has effects for people as they build towards the future that are built on the past. <laughs> like all these spirits come from different time periods and from the past. And those spirits use their experience and the, often the traumatic events that led to their deaths prior to becoming spirits to sort of help the living prepare for a better future, spiritually, socially, politically. It can be so much like helping bring rain or making sure childbirth is successful or that their crops work. Um, it can be more like tangible like that, but it can also be more intangible of ensuring healthy social relations among the living and between the living and the dead and between different communities of the dead, um, all of which is really emerges in the here and now, like the doing of the music and the playing and the dancing and the communing, the success of that moment is what helps ensure that the future will be good or better and that the past was worth it and has some effect. <laughs> it was worth it. It's right. Yeah. Um, um, <clears throat> so it has a kind of instrumental value in the sense of, you know, I'm thinking in the Christian context again, you know, pray for this and you might get that. I was always told not to do that, but. Um, <laughs> no, there is a kind of instrumental component to it. Um, but I think that's a, maybe a secondary sort of a motivation. The main, I think motivation is, um, nurturing healthy relationships um, between people, but also between people and their spirits. Because these spirits, the Madhulodi spirits I'm describing, they're not the only ones. There's, a, there's also a god, and there's also the ancestors, and there's more powerful spirits. But these spirits kind of protect those spirits. They're sort of, I had a, a, a friend who was one of my main sort of interlocutors who worked for the government, so he thought about things in kind of government metaphors. And he's like, the spirits are sort of like parliament in a way. Like you as constituents go to them with your troubles. They might talk to the president. The spirits might talk to God. But you need to have a healthy relationship with your representatives so that they will represent you. Um, so you want to keep them happy. What makes the spirits happiest is dancing. So you have a ceremony. You invite them. Give them an opportunity to dance and hang out with their friends because it's always multiple spirits at the same time sort of a you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You make the spirits happy, they'll make they'll protect your ancestors and try and make your life a little better. Yeah. So we, we talked a little bit about how um, music is an emotional experience. What kind of affects, plural, do you see at these? Do people cry? Do people laugh? Do people, what do they do? Yes, all of the above. <laughs> it really depends on 
<laughs> what led you to have a ceremony. It depends on the circumstances of your life. Um, like in chapter five, I write about this guy had prepared to have a ceremony for a long time. Um, but right before the ceremony, a member of his family died, which is a very sad event. And typically when you're grieving in this sort of period of bereavement, you don't play music, you don't play drums, you sort of have silence sort of as out of respect. But he'd also put a lot of money into preparing for the ceremony in a moment of real hardship and poverty. And he knew he couldn't do it again anytime soon. So he was really caught. So he did it anyway. And some people at that event were super joyous and having fun because they ever got to dance and play and be with the spirits and be with each other. It's like a party. So they were laughing and just because there were good musicians at the ceremony. So it was really good. So that just generates all this positive affect. But he was grieving and crying because he knew he was actually being kind of disrespectful. And he was kind of hoping he could have it both ways, but he failed. So he knew he was going to have to have another ceremony, which would cost more money, mostly to kind of apologize for having this one because it was sort of seen as disrespectful. Um, and other people could be crying because they could be remembering the spirit who died who might be emerging in some other context. So it's one thing that's one reason I find this music so fun to write about and talk to people about and do is it's not like there's happy music, like in major keys that you know everybody's going to be happy when they hear it, or sad music that is accompanied with, I don't know, sad movies, and it's in minor and slow. You know everybody's going to be happy. Like Leonard Cohen kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the same song and engender a broad range of affective responses, depending on the circumstances of the performer and the listener and the moment it's being played. Um, that's, I think it's super cool. I think it's well. It of- happened to me the other day. I mean, while I was walking down the street, I was coming back from the gym, and the song just appeared. And I was—I knew that I was in a kind of mm, emotional state. I knew that I was, and then the song showed up, and I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> On another and day, at another important. time, it would—it yeah. wouldn't have done that. But like at that moment, yeah, <laughs> I did it. Um, and what what uh, I really appreciate about people at the ceremonies is their openness to those experiences. Like they're open to going into trance or they're open to crying in public or they're open to just being moved in ways that I, maybe I'm not. I'm kind of right. Midwest. Well, actually, this leads to my I actually have two more questions. One is these are exhausting experiences. Do you have a kind of hangover yeah. after you're done with them? I mean, do you have to recover for a day after you? I do. <laughs> yeah. I was, often, I was often surprised at how some people didn't seem to. Because some ceremonies, like the really serious ones, like in moments of real turmoil could go on for two days or longer. Um, so yes, they're exhausting. Yeah, if you sort of sleep when you can, like if, if somebody drove to the ceremony, like might sneak out at two in the morning and go sleep for an hour or two and then come back or something like that. Or then the next day, at least for me, often I'll go to bed at like 10 in the morning and then just have a fitful day or two of sleeping in weird times. It's more like being jet lagged, but it's it's so invigorating if it goes well that you can overcome. You can recover pretty quickly because it's just mm-hmm. really sure, it's really sure. fun. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and and then my my final uh, question is um, I don't know it's a question. It's more of a proposition. I don't think we have this in American life, do we? Well, I think we do. 
some people do, but not very many. And I think it's something that's really been lost, whether you want to blame capitalism or I don't know. I don't yeah, want to go there. I don't know you blame, but I don't. There are spaces like some churches really celebrate a sort of sort of worship experience and use music to really generate these kinds of euphoric or ecstatic experiences. Mm, ecstatic experiences, um, yeah. I think some pop music like raves. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Some kinds of jam bands. They're, they're really about generating those shared in the moment experiences. There's some kind of like old time music. I don't know if you ever go to like contra dances. Those are really about the in the moment experiences. They don't commodify very well. Yeah. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> so they ha- they happen, but they're kind of behind the scenes, and they're not on Spotify. So you can't find you can't buy these experiences. You have to work at them. Um, so I think they exist all over the world, but some places have been better about nurturing them and really foregrounding them. And some places, maybe like the U.S., neglect them. I mean, you make a very good point about uh, the, the the difficulty of commodifying these experiences because in the United States, th- things tend to continue if they can be paid for or if people are willing to donate their time for them. And if they can't be paid for and people won't donate their time to them, then they're not going to happen. And or you're in front of Netflix. <laughs> they might happen out of sight. Out of, like, I think there's a lot of musical experiences that are comparable you just they're not on the radio then you just don't see them so you have to be related to somebody who does them who teaches you how to do them and then you might do them but nobody around you might even know it right right i mean the, the one place where they are kind of commodified and that is the jam band experience when i was young i used to go see the grateful dead i've never seen fish but i i know that people get very into that and i i had some experiences at rock concerts i can say that and i think people who aren't deadheads or fish heads might ridicule those experiences or not that's lame. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I i mean i think those have staying power because i they definitely do they absolutely yeah. do and yeah they're and they're 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 healthy and they're fun yeah. <laughs> i'm too old fun to do it key. now yeah fun is key i think the ceremonies wouldn't survive in the same way if people just didn't have a really good time like they're serious the, the dead visit the spirits are there they have consequences but they're really fun yeah, they are totally fun. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. That's great. Well, um, Tony, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about something I spent so long on. <laughs> okay. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye.